0: Welcome to the podcast for Papakura Baptist Church. This podcast exists to glorify God through the preaching of His Word. For more information about Papakura Baptist Church, please visit www.papakurabaptist.co.nz um, So we're in, we're in uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. Uh, so I'm going to pray and then I'll read that out for us. Gracious God, we thank you for all the joys that you bring us in life. Uh, The joy of marriage uh, and spending your life loving and cherishing someone else. The joy of children and giving your life sacrificially to see them grow and uh, become adults. But Lord, we're also struck by the curse of sin this week. That in this world, people suffer and people die. And Father, in the midst of all of this uh, that we have experienced even this morning, we thank you for the solidity that is your word, that we can come to it, that it is true, that we can learn from it, that it never changes despite the ups and downs of the years. And so, Father, I pray as we come to it, we would come and see your goodness and your graciousness and your glory and your righteousness once again. We would come and be encouraged and challenged to put our faith and our trust in you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look at your disciples, look what your disciples are doing, what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of, of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went from there and entered uh, their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, uh, and they asked him, is it lawful uh, to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you uh, who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much, more, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. And the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him and he healed them all. And ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant who I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Do you consider yourself a perfectionist. A perfectionist is someone who demands perfection of themselves or others. Are you a perfectionist? perfectionism will be a pretty familiar concept to most of us, it's not uncommon for someone to claim that they are a perfectionist in this area or that area, but there's two things that really puzzle me about this concept and about its use in our society and in, our, in, in common use. First, I feel like the standard for being a perfectionist is quite a lot less than perfect. I often hear people claim to be a perfectionist in this area or that area, and I think to myself, are you really demanding perfection? Is that really what you're doing? Or are you just kind of, is there just a few things that you're quite conscious of? Maybe that means like I'm the worst perfectionist of all, but I often wonder, are we, we? often we claim to be perfectionists. We claim to demand perfection, and yet it's not really visible in the way we live. The second thing that puzzles me is that the opposite of perfectionism doesn't exist as a concept in our society. And you can tell it by asking one simple question, what would you call the opposite of a perfectionist? What word would you use to describe someone who is the opposite of a perfectionist? There's no word, is there? You might say they're lazy or they're careless, but it's not really perfectionist. It's like this psychological diagnosis, and we don't have one. And so we're in this funny place where this uh, concept of a person whose standards are way too high is really prevalent, and a lot of us think that in some areas that's us. A lot of us think often that our standards are too high and too demanding. Lots of people claim that, and yet we have... No word and no standard for our imperfectionist, someone whose standards are way too low and who constantly uh, don't do what they should do. People are criticized for being perfectionists but are not criticized for not doing things well enough. The reason I bring this up is because it actually affects how we read this passage. It actually affects how we understand our Bibles we tend to pick up a book like Matthew and we read about the Pharisees and read about their really high standards, all the rules that they have, and we think perfectionists. Here are these men, perfectionists, and of course perfectionism is bad, everybody knows that, and so these guys must be bad because they're perfectionists. They have two higher standards, and all the other people who are, who have no standards, the tax collectors and the Sinners, we don't see them negatively because that's just not how uh, we think. Today we're talking about these uh, perfectionists, for want of a better word, these Pharisees with really, really high standards. We've encountered them uh, a few times already in the book of Matthew, but chapter 12 seems to be the first time that Jesus and the Pharisees really lock horns. Uh, They haven't seen eye to eye But this is the first real battlefield of this book. And so before we jump into this passage, I'd like us to think for a minute about what Pharisees were. All throughout the Gospels, they're the bad guys. Even in this passage, in verse 14, we see that it's the Pharisees who are conspiring to destroy Jesus. We know they're the bad guys. They're Jesus' mortal enemies, his arch nemesis. And because we know this, and as we read the Bible, it's so clear that they're the bad guys, we tend to imagine them like the typical villain from a movie. We imagine that they kind of turn up and they're dressed all in black, and they're always squinting and sneering, and probably most of them have like a hunch on their back or a wart on their face, and they're just bad. They're bad guys. And this way of thinking, thinking of them as the bad guys, Really doesn't help us to understand who they were. The Pharisees, this group of, uh, this religious group, were a hugely respected group of people in this place, in that time. They were marked by their commitment to righteousness and their commitment to scripture. If you were knocking about in the first century AD, and you want to find the people who are most serious about God's word, the people who took this Bible as authoritative, then you'd go to a Pharisee because that's who they were. They were trying to take the Bible seriously. And because um, they were committed to living by God's word, they did the exact same things that you and I do. Well, they do the exact same things that anyone who is committed to obeying God's word will do. They set up rules to help them obey God's word. This passage of scripture takes place on the Sabbath. God had said that the Sabbath was there to be a holy day and a day of rest. And so the Pharisees had tried to apply that practically to their lives and to the lives of people around them. They tried to define what was work and what was rest so that you would know if you're obeying God's word or if you're disobeying it. And I think if you're serious about obeying God's word, you will see how reasonable this is. Taking God's word and applying it to the detail of life. But the Pharisees had taken this a step too far. Over the course of time, it didn't happen from the get-go, but over the course of time, they'd start to see these extracurricular rules as not just a way of obeying God's word, but it was the and the only way of obeying God's word. The only way people could be right before God. And this has put them on a collision course with Jesus. And so here in the 21 verses of chapter 12, we read of the first real bout between Jesus and the Pharisees. The first two, in fact. The first battle is, uh, the battleground is the Sabbath. And Jesus and and the Pharisees will duke it out for for two rounds, which we'll look at. Uh, And while the presenting issue, the main thing they're talking about is the Sabbath and what is lawful to do on the Sabbath, there's an issue that sits behind, which is probably the real issue that we're talking about, uh, and it's about God's word and how we obey God's word. What does adherence to God's word actually look like? Do the Pharisees have it right? We could say that this passage is about what place perfectionists have in God's kingdom. What does Jesus have to say about people whose standards are really, really high? Let's jump in. Ding, 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 round one, verses one to eight. Jesus and his disciples, they're going about, they're walking around through a cornfield. The disciples are hungry, so they pick some heads of grain and they roll them between their hands so they can eat them. And the Pharisees see this straight away for what it is this is work. Reaping, harvesting, preparing a meal, all of those things are wrong to do on the Sabbath because they're work. Clear as day, red handed. Dead to rights, closed case. These followers of Jesus has no regard for the Sabbath, for keeping it holy, for obeying God's word. And so the battle lines are drawn. The disciples of Jesus wrong in what they do. Notice Jesus as he responds in verse 3. Have you not read... Simple to uh, skip over those words uh, and get to the sort of the interesting parts about David and whatever, Uh, but it's a rhetorical question that is very, very, very pointed. No one would come up to Dan Carter and say, have you never kicked a rugby ball before? No one would go to Michelangelo and say, do you know which way to hold a paintbrush? And yet, uh, the Pharisees were the people who prided themselves on rightly handling God's word. And Jesus is asking them, have you even read it? Do you even know what it says? It's an offensive question. On the one hand, they would see it as entirely inappropriate. And yet, it's entirely appropriate. Jesus is going to draw their attention and our attention to three different parts of Scripture in response to their Uh, the issue that they raise. The first is a story from 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, It's one of these times when David's on the run from Saul. He's having to escape. He's got his little uh, merry band of men with him, and they're hungry. And so they turn up at the temple, and they ask the priest for bread, and he says, I've got none except for this special holy bread, this bread that was used as part of the ceremonies of worship. We can read about it if you want in Leviticus 24, but this bread was only meant to be eaten by priests, by sons of Aaron. David is certainly not that. His men are certainly not that. And yet he eats. So here is a situation in Scripture where David, a hugely important figure in Israel's history, disregards the law disregards what the Bible says because he's hungry and there's seemingly no consequences. There's no punishment. So the question is, which Jesus is raising, if it was okay for David to disregard the Bible, what Leviticus 24 says, when he was hungry, isn't it okay for the disciples to disregard what the Pharisees say when they're hungry? Jesus keeps going. Not only are the Pharisees' rules inconsistent with just reading Scripture, they also don't really work in term for everybody to obey Scripture in that day. In verse 5, Jesus points out that far from resting on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple work harder. They have to do more sacrifices on uh, the Sabbath. It's their busiest day of the week. And so the priests break these Sabbath rules every single Sabbath day. And yet they're not guilty. And so if it's okay for the priests to break the Sabbath rules, isn't it okay for the disciples to break these rules when something greater than the temple is here? If you stop for a moment and think about these two passages or these two arguments that Jesus has made, we see he's responding to the Pharisees by telling them that their rules don't actually work. They don't fit with what we can read in Scripture. They're not drawing from all we have to draw upon in this Bible. They haven't read the whole thing and understood the whole thing and come up with, with thoughts that fit the whole of Scripture. They don't even work for the people who are trying to obey Scripture in that day. Don't miss what Jesus is doing here. It would have been easy for Jesus to come out and say to the Pharisees, your rules are just rubbish. I'm not going to make my disciples follow them because why would I? They're just your rules. I don't have to. But notice what he's doing. Jesus is saying to these people who prided themselves on their commitment to Scripture that they actually need to read it a bit more. They actually need to look harder. They actually haven't understood what the Scripture means. These perfectionists did not have high enough standards. And we see that even more so in verse 7. Because Jesus isn't finished. What are the standards that God expects? What had the Pharisees really missed? Jesus shows us in verse 7 with a quote from Hosea 6, God speaking, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Back in Hosea, when Hosea first said this, he is calling uh, 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 the people of Israel to repentance. And the people at that time may have said, hold on a bit, minute, Hosea, we're still doing all the temple things, we're doing sacrifices and whatever. And Hosea says, no, repentance is not about doing the right sacrifices, it's about a change of heart. You need to change your heart. Their sacrifices didn't mean anything unless they were accompanied by mercy. God wants their affection more than their action. He wants their hearts more than their hands. And the Pharisees failed to understand this. They had wrongly assumed that what matters most was what they did rather than what uh, they loved. And that made them people, as we see in the end of verse 7, who condemned rather than showed mercy. These people who valued the Bible so highly had cold hearts. This was a big part of the Pharisees' failure. They had busy hands, but cold, cold hearts. And we need to ask that of ourselves. Do I have busy hands, but a cold heart? It's easy enough to come up with a list of things that you should do, a list of really good things that are from the Bible that you should do to obey God's word, but it's no good unless it's affecting your heart. Do we have busy hands, but cold hearts? And a question, another question that sort of flows on for that, how do you know? How do you assess yourself to see if you're a cold-hearted person that just is doing lots and lots of stuff? And I think there's a test that arises fairly simply and fairly easily from this passage. The Pharisees are condemned because they condemned people rather than showing mercy. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Their problem is that they're condemning rather than showing mercy. That's the symptom of their cold hearts. And so that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Am I more likely to condemn than show mercy? Do I, act, uh, do I react with judgment or compassion? Think about last week. Think about the people you've thought about. Think about the the people you've interacted with. Was it marked by condemnation or mercy? If we're people with busy hands and cold hearts, then we'll be people who condemn rather than show mercy. Round one, Jesus confronts. The Pharisees about their busy hands; they're doing lots of things, but cold hearts. They're not loving, not showing mercy. But in case we didn't get the point, there's round two in the ring. Jesus and the Pharisees going at it, and this confrontation is more overt and more challenging than the last one. Jesus goes into notice their Sabbath. He knows what he's doing. He's on the front foot, and uh, and. Uh, A man with a withered hand comes, and the Pharisees think they can get him. And so they ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? We see it, so that they might accuse him. they are asking, is it allowed? Is it permissible? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? But Jesus has an answer for them, and he points to part of the law. You're allowed to pull an animal out of a hole on the Sabbath to kind of save it. You're allowed to do that. That's not considered work because it's something that was, that was good to do. And in fact, I'm pretty sure this is right. I think you're allowed to pull your neighbor's animal out as well if you see your neighbor's animal there. And so Jesus' argument is quite simple. Uh, if you're allowed to help an animal, if you're allowed to do a good thing to a piece of property, how much more should you be allowed to do a good thing to a person? Because aren't people more valuable than animals? Now the point is impossible to miss. The Pharisees in their rules and their standard were actually prohibiting Jesus from doing good. But within that there's a subtler distinction that I think Jesus is drawing out. He's asking us, he's asking them to think about right and wrong, good and bad. The point that he's making is that the Pharisees think they're right. They think they've understood the Bible correctly, and yet that is stopping them from doing good. What was lawful wasn't good. Their rightness, their lawfulness was actually bad. And to do what was wrong, that was actually what was good. And that should make us think about right and wrong, good and bad. Because this passage shows that you can believe that you're following God's word and doing what's right and yet be being bad. This distinction is quite subtle. If you're truly doing what's right, then it will be good. I don't want you to miss that point. If, you, if, you're, if you're understanding God's word and knowing what it means, and not just picking out on one part, but actually thinking about the whole and trying to conform your life to all of what it says, then that will be good. Right things are good things, and good things are right things. Yet here we see in this passage, what, is, what can be considered right can be bad. And we need to think about that. We need to think about our own mindsets for a moment. This is not the only situation which Jesus faces where people use what is right to justify what is wrong. We are a church who really value correctly understanding what the Bible says. We put that really high. Lots of us uh, here want to make sure what we do is right. And that's a good thing. But quite easily become only thinking about what is correct, not what is good. In every aspect of life, the only thing that matters is being right and not doing good. I think a symptom of this is how we talk about other Christians. I often hear Christians, I often hear us, as we speak about Other people, other Christians trying to do things that are good, we often write them off because theologically they've got something wrong. I've done it myself in the past week. It's a kind of Pharisaism within us. Only thinking about what is right, what is considered right, and not understanding what is good. The Pharisees let what is lawful stop them from allowing what is good? Are our hands busy and our hearts cold? Are we more concerned with being right than doing good? If you think about it, they're strange critiques of people with really high standards, aren't they? This is what Jesus thinks about those people who are the most committed to righteousness. They're not reading the Bible closely enough. They're not committed enough to doing good. What does that tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about Jesus that he is confronted by people with the highest standards in in the world, and he says to them, not good enough? Matthew doesn't leave, leave us hanging. In the midst of all this conflict, Jesus retreats uh, and yet people as always follow him and they are healed. And this gives rise to Matthew seeing a prophecy from Isaiah fulfilled, uh, which we read in 18 to 21. Now don't miss how pointed this is. Jesus has just been going head to head with the Pharisees about what the Bible says and how to correctly understand it. They've just been essentially arguing about that having this debate about what it means to follow the Sabbath. And that's followed up by an example of Jesus not just obeying, but fulfilling the scripture. Jesus perfectly fulfills what God has written. You can't miss it. It's clear as day what Matthew is doing in the midst of this debate over what it means to obey God. Jesus does it. He does it perfectly. He fulfills what was written about him. He perfectly lives up To these standards, he perfectly lives in the light of God's word as the Pharisees were not doing. But this passage is telling us more about Jesus. He is the servant who God loves. And God has given him the spirit to empower him for a special task. And that special task involves the Gentiles proclaiming justice to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were anyone who was not a Jew. Anyone who is from the outside. And verses 19 to 21 further elaborates on how he'll do that. It won't be through self-promotion. It won't be through kind of crying out on in the streets. It will be through gentleness and tenderness towards the fragile and the insignificant until justice has victory and the Gentiles hope in him. Now that's a nice way to end the passage for sure, that Gentiles have hope that Jesus is gentle uh, and kind to these people. But it's all the more salient when we see it in the context of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were concerned with their public obedience, doing it out in the open as we've already read in Matthew uh, the Pharisees pray in the synagogues and on the street corners they were known for doing their righteousness and they were known known for doing it in the most public places Jesus withdrew Jesus does what was right what he what was good in secrecy and obscurity telling people not to tell anyone The Pharisees were concerned with setting a standard of righteousness and making sure people kept it, condemning those who didn't. But Jesus will bring justice to the Gentiles. Jesus will bring righteousness and goodness to the Gentiles. All this is pointing to how Jesus is different from the Pharisees. We might say that the Pharisees care more about perfection than they care about people. More about their standards than those who are trying to keep them. And so they're quick to condemn those who fail. Quick to trample upon those who are less worthy, less acceptable, less able. And the first people that they would condemn is the Gentiles. The least righteous, the least worthy, the least acceptable. What we see here is not that Jesus cares more about people than perfection. He's not the opposite. Jesus cares about both people and perfection. This quote tells us that Jesus has come to bring justice to Gentiles. Jesus has come to people who are on the outside, people who are unrighteous, by definition, unclean, unworthy. This is Jesus' target audience, those who are down and out. The weak, the frail, the feeble, the outcast—those who are most looked down upon, those who it would be most easy, the easiest to snuff them out or to break them off. Jesus came for the worst of sinners, and look what He offers: victory for justice and hope. Jesus will not allow sin to keep ruling, righteousness to keep, or unrighteousness to keep going on unchecked. Jesus will persist until He brings justice to victory, until righteousness wins. But he does it in such a way that even the most unworthy have hope. He fights for what is good and right in such a way that those who are bad and wrong will look to his name. This is, of course, laying the groundwork for what we so that we might understand what he did upon the cross. How Jesus uh, came to make sure that justice wins while offering hope to the undeserving. And we only see that in his sacrifice upon the cross. It's in the cross where we see Jesus' total commitment to righteousness. Have you ever wondered why God just didn't? you know, just say, I forgive you like we do and just be done with it. Why he had to send Jesus to die? Why uh, we couldn't be accepted without this sacrifice? Jesus has already told us why in chapter 5. Unless your righteousness exceeds that, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. God will not allow injustice and sin to prevail. He won't allow it to go on unchecked and unpunished. He cannot allow unrighteousness to remain untouched by justice. Wrongdoing cannot remain in God's holy presence. And so he sent Jesus to deal with this problem. It was God's commitment to righteousness and justice that made him send Jesus. Jesus to deal with sin, to take wrongdoing upon himself, to be crushed by our sin. By the punishment that we deserved. The cross shows that Jesus will not compromise on sin. He will not compromise on his standards of righteousness. But he will offer hope because Jesus does this for us. He gives his life for sinners, for Gentiles. He pays for our injustice, bleeds for our wrongdoing so that we who are unworthy and and fail and are unrighteousness, whoever believes in him might have their wrongness, their disobedience, their lawlessness taken away. Titus 2.14 says, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus offers righteousness for the lawless and justice for those who are wrong so that goodness and what is right might prevail, might win. an interesting passage. It strikes me that at any point that Jesus could have turned to the Pharisees and just said, get lost. Your rules, they're just made up. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say that the Pharisees were too intense about their pursuit of righteousness. If anything, he critiques them for not reading closely enough, not working hard enough. To bring about righteousness. Their commitment to righteousness was nowhere near what it needed to be. It was nowhere near God's own commitment to what is right. The Pharisees were happy with with good people becoming a bit better. But Jesus was not happy for it with that. For us today, we need to uh, see that Jesus is, is not saying, it's fine, you can do what you want. Righteousness doesn't matter. We need to remember that God wants to clothe the least righteous, the worst of people, in the righteousness of Christ. God is not about making good people a bit better. He's about making terrible sinners perfect. The more intense we are about righteousness, the more intense we are about goodness, the more we pursue what God says, the more we'll understand how wonderful Jesus is. The more we try and submit ourselves to these standards of what is good and what is right, the more we'll see how glorious, how great the victory that Jesus won for us on the cross is. The more we'll come to him for righteousness, not trying to manufacture our own, the more we'll praise him for his grace. We must not be lazy and imperfectionist about what is good and what is right. But we must come to Jesus for righteousness. And so what does Jesus have to say about people with really high standards? What uh, does Jesus think about people who consider themselves perfectionists? He shows them that their standards are not high enough. Their rules are not attentive enough to what Scripture says. Their righteousness is not doing enough good. Their hands might be busy, but it hasn't affected them enough inside. And he shows them that God doesn't want to make good people better. He wants to make sinners perfect. Jesus will bring justice to victory and hope to Gentiles. And so the question for us this morning as we we go out into the week is, are our standards high enough? Are your standards for what is good and what is righteous high enough? Or are we going to be content with Pharisaism, content with rules that we can keep? Do we understand that God is so holy that he will not allow one blot of sin to go unpunished? Do we see that God is so committed to perfection and holiness and purity in his people that he sent his only son to die in our place so that we might have a perfect record? Are we? Do we have high enough standards for righteousness this morning? Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are holy and good and righteous beyond all else. And yet your love and your compassion and your grace is so astounding that you would send your only son, Jesus, to give himself for us, for we who are wicked, who don't deserve him. Father, help us to see how holy you are. How wonderful and how grand your standard for what is good and right is. And make us run to Jesus. Make us go to him to find victory for justice and hope for us who do not deserve it. Help us to remember always that in him we have righteousness that we could never create ourselves. We thank you for what Jesus has done for those of us, uh, for all of us who don't deserve it. And I pray you'd keep us from being like the Pharisees. I pray that this would affect our hearts. I pray that this would make us hunger for what is right and for what is good. And we pray this so that the greatness and the worthiness of Jesus might be seen by all. It's in His name we pray. Amen.